Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a critical care specialist tells about caring for COVID-19 patients in the intensive care unit. The patients do actually better if you if you put them on their stomach. The patients will ventilate better. And th- this seems to have a very big impact in this particular disease. A social scientist and public health expert discusses the effectiveness of social distancing. And we'll hear from experts from Vera House and the McMahon-Ryan Child Advocacy Center about the pandemic's effects on domestic violence. We know that um, anytime that there's stress in a family, economic downturn, the fear that's generated by this pandemic, all those things result in children being sort of the one who gets it taken out on in either physical abuse or sexual abuse. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, on a special coronavirus-themed episode, a social scientist and public health expert discusses the effectiveness of social distancing. Then, we'll hear about the pandemic's effects on domestic violence. But first, a critical care specialist tells about caring for COVID-19 patients in the intensive care unit. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some of the people who test positive for COVID-19 become sick enough to require hospitalization, and many of those patients are cared for by doctors who specialize in critical care medicine. I'm talking today with Dr. Jim Sexton. He's an associate professor of medicine specializing in critical care at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Sexton. Thank you. Are your patients all in the intensive care unit? Is that where doctors specializing in critical care work? That's where all my intensive care unit patients are, uh, obviously. Um, I, uh, like most uh, adult critical care specialists, I am um both a uh, critical care specialist and a lung specialist so pulmonary and critical care uh, generally go hand in hand what are the medical problems you've seen in patients with covid-19 who end up in the icu well we've seen a number of different problems um in the icu hypoxia or low oxygen is a, is a big one you can get uh, um respiratory failure where you you're also start to retain carbon dioxide so that the, the lungs are just not working and have to go on life support uh, we've also had patients have problems with clotting disorders forming blood clots to their lungs and patients with um, heart problems uh, from the uh, disease uh, we've also had patients get sick enough where they go into renal failure from it well, you mentioned um, the low oxygen levels, and I've I've read about that, um, that a COVID-19 patient may have very low oxygen levels, but not realize it. So what is happening? I mean, they're still breathing okay, right? Well, oxygen is, a, um, just because your oxygen levels are low does not mean you'll be short of breath. That, um, really, the only um, symptom that low oxygen will reliably give you is fatigue. Um, it, whether you get short of breath is actually dependent on a number of other factors. Um, by itself, low oxygen will not make you feel short of breath. Um, it will give you other symptoms. Now, again, there's a number of other factors that go into play there, and it gets to be very complicated. But yes, people can be, have low oxygen and not feel short of breath. So how is low oxygen usually treated? Is Are those people given oxygen, extra oxygen? Uh, yeah. If you are, it, it, uh, again, it, it, it'll depend on a couple of different things, but in, it, it, at the very least, you'll give supplemental oxygen. So normally we're breathing 21% oxygen. Um, if you uh, give, if you increase that percentage, you'll get be getting more into your bloodstream. What about medical imaging? Do the lungs of COVID patients look different from the lungs of patients with pneumonia? In general, the the there are there are infiltrates in the lung which will happen with pneumonia or COVID. Um, 
the types of of um, infiltrates you get are can happen with normal pneumonias, but usually not with normal pneumonias. But you can see this type of uh, infiltrates um, in a number of different lung conditions. Um, but when you put the whole clinical um, scenario together with the abnormal X-rays, um, you will um, often be able to, you know, get an idea that yes, this is COVID. This is not. I've heard so that some talk about. Go ahead. Go, oh, I, I've heard that some COVID nineteen patients are like patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome. Can you tell us what that is? Acute respiratory distress syndrome is an inflammatory reaction in your lungs to some type of injury. And it, hap it tends to go throughout both lungs uh, diffusely. Um, that can be almost any type of lung injury. It could be a direct trauma, like a, like a, a pulmonary contusion. Um, it could, but more commonly, it will be people, patients that will get either um, pneumonia or um, some other type of inflammatory reaction in the lung that then gets kind of generalized throughout both lungs. Um, COVID can give you ARDS just like um, any other lung infection, um, but it can also give this kind of ARDS-like picture that's not quite ARDS. Um, there's there's a the kind of COVID lung which is not um, doesn't appear to be the same type of inflammation as normal ARDS. Does COVID nineteen remind you of any other disease? Anything in total like this, it's different than most other things that I've seen with inflammatory reactions in the lung. Not drastically, but but it is different. That the, the COVID lung does seem to be a bit different. And then the infection leading to such clotting problems where you can develop pulmonary emboli is, is unusual for the, a viral infection like this. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jim Sexton, who specializes in critical care medicine at Upstate. Well, in terms of taking care of patients who have COVID-19, how do you monitor whether they're getting better? A lot of that is going to be based on how much support requirements. So, like, if I have a patient who's on life support, um, life support is not just a yes or a no. It, there's different levels of life support. So, how much am I having to do to support the patient through this? And, and you can gauge um, how well they're doing based on whether or not is that stable? Is that getting worse? Is it getting better? And once it gets better, can it get to a point where we can actually get rid of it and 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 allow the patient to go back on their own and not need the support to keep them going? Um, I've heard fever being one of the symptoms of this. If a fever starts coming down uh, on its own, is that a good sign that the person's body is sort of fighting off the virus? Um. If the yeah, if the fevers kind of go away, it's it's one of the things is the symptoms start to re resolve. Um, the the fever actually is there. That's actually part of the body's response against the virus. So um, the the virus itself doesn't cause the fever. It's the, it's the body's reaction to it. Mm. So um, so and and that helps helps actually help, helps the body fight off the virus. Does the length of time that someone is hospitalized? determine their chances of recovery? Because we've seen news reports of people that have gone home after, you know, a 50 or 60 day stay in the hospital, which I think that's a really long time, isn't it? Not really compared to most ARDS cases. Oh, <laughs> ARDS okay. is a, is um, usually a patient who gets ARDS is going to be in the hospital for weeks. Um, so uh, yeah, there'll be patients that'll be in the hospital for quite some time. What have you learned about COVID-19 from the patients you and your colleagues have cared for? Well, we're, we're, it's a constant process of, of trying to learn, getting as much information from other areas, other places that have had um, as much or more experience with these types of patients so that we can learn from their experience as well as our own. Um, so we've been in contact with people from Wuhan. We've been in contact from people from Europe and New York City. Um, so uh, we are learning quite a bit, um, and we're trying to do it as rapidly as we possibly can. 
Is there anything that survivors have in common? Well, not getting put on life support is a, a big one, but um, but that really doesn't help you. <laughs> um, I, the looking at what's the prognosis? What, what's the chance you'll do well versus what's the chance you'll do poorly with this? There are definitely factors that would indicate you're more likely to have a good outcome versus a bad one. So for example, age is, is a major factor in this disease. Um, patients uh, that once you get above the age of about 60, your risk of something really bad happening really starts to rise. Prior to the age of 60, it's it's very low. Yes, there are reports of people, uh, you know, children, young adults getting very sick with this. It does happen. But as a percentage of, of the people who get the disease, it's, it's still a very low rate, particularly as you compare it to um, the elderly population. Once you start to get to kind of late middle age, you start to hit your late 50s, um, the, the risk starts to rise at that point, continue to climb as um, you get older and older patients. So that would be an example of something that would, would help predict, you know, is this patient going to do good or bad? Um, not everyone that's 85 does poorly. Not everyone that's 25 does great. But it, it does give you a probability um, to, to start looking at and following these things. Other things would be underlying comorbidities, so underlying medical problems, uh, particularly serious heart or lung problems, uh, seem to help. Uh, you know that if you have an underlying lung problem, you're more likely to do poorly than if if you have normal lungs. Well, in terms of treatment, um, what is helping? That is a little bit more difficult to pin down because you're. It's, it's hard to see um, these things without doing studies. So that's why we rely on studies. You need to have um, large groups of people and you need to be able to differentiate, you know, what's the effect of this medication versus what's like, say, the, just a natural course of this disease. Um, so, you know, when we look at the studies, the, the remdesivir has been shown to be of benefit. Um, now, remdesivir, is that the antiviral? That's an antiviral. Okay. Yes. So it sort of uh -huh. shortens the course, hopefully, for a person? Hopefully, yeah. Um, the um, other medications, just putting people on blood thinners appears to be beneficial. Now, that's not going to fight the virus itself, but it'll fight one of the major problems from the virus, which is the clot formation. Um so, and you, you wouldn't do that in everybody that gets COVID by any stretch of the imagination. You would do that in people that get really critically ill, particularly if you get to the point where you're starting to drop your um, um, oxygen. But what we do is we actually follow to see if there's signs of, of excessive clot formation in the body. And if we start to see those signs, um, we can start people on blood thinners. So for people with COVID-19, are they... Do they need their body's immune system to work better or or less? Are you trying to suppress it, or like what are you trying to do with their immune system? Uh, you you want it to work appropriately because if you if you suppress it too far, the body's not going to be able to fight off the um, virus. If you don't, if you uh, allow it to go too hog wild in certain situations, then then the inflammatory response itself is causing the problems. That's the ARDS. Now, can you do anything to suppress the immune system? In general, you shouldn't. Um, our, our experience with infections causing really bad reactions like this, not necessarily COVID, suppressing the immune system generally makes things worse because your immune system is there to fight off the, the virus. Um, now, certain anti-inflammatories like steroids may help, but steroids are not as strong an immune suppressant as they are just suppressing the inflammatory response. So in, in general, no, you don't want to suppress the immune system, but you may want to suppress the inflammatory response, but what, you got to be very careful with that. Let me ask you, because early on in this uh, outbreak, we heard a lot about ventilators. Are those mm -hmm. being used for patients who are critically ill with this disease? Um, 
I think we have five or six in in the upstate system right now on ventilators from COVID. So it is um, a necessity for some patients. Yes. Now, what about positioning patients on their stomachs? Have you heard any of your colleagues that have talked about positioning patients? Oh, yes. This is, this is a standard um, uh, intervention in, in ARDS before COVID. Um, the patients do actually better if you, if you put them on their stomach. There's more lung in the back than there is up front. So if you, but, all right, and then, so there's more lung in the back, but the lung as it gets diseased will get heavier and compress the lung underneath it. So if you're laying on your back where there's more lung back there, the front of the chest and the front of the lung is actually going to compress more lung. And if you flip the person over and now you're compressing the front of the lung where there's less lung so that there's more lung open in the back. So the patients will ventilate better. And th this seems to have a very big impact in this particular disease. So that's gravity, basically. Yep. Interesting. It's, it's, it's that simple. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, we have talked with uh, other providers from Upstate about the Convalescent Blood Plasma Project. Have mm -hmm. you seen success with that? Um, I have not had a patient on that uh, study yet, um, but um, it's actually been about a month since I've been on the ICU. I'm, I'm on the ICU this week. Um, but um, so I really haven't had the opportunity because um, I just haven't been in the ICU recently. I was on the pulmonary service instead. Um, the But I do know the convalescent plasma works in in viral infections like this in, in general um we have a lot of of um hope for this this one we really think that this will be a a, a big factor in the very very ill patients you're not going to do it with people with kind of routine covid infections but people who get very uh, critically ill with it um seem to do much better with it and this is where blood from people who have recovered is used uh, for people who are still ill to help their body mount a response, right? Not, not so much help them mount a response. It's you're actually taking advantage of the response the other person already had. And so they've already, they've already developed their own antibodies to this. And then I can, I can basically transfuse these antibodies into another patient to help them. So I'm taking advantage of the previous patient's immune response to help the, this patient now fight off the disease. I see. Well, we're only six months since the first case of COVID-19 came to light in America. What do you think things are going to look like a year from now with regard to people who become sick with COVID-19? Do you think there'll be a new treatment, um, a vaccine, a way to prevent someone who's infected from you know, getting so bad that they need an ICU? So a couple of questions there. Um, vaccine, I'm not sure how, how long that's going to take. Um, uh, obviously, um, people are working on that. Um, how far along they are, I don't know. Um, I, I don't have any uh, direct um, um, interaction with the people making these vaccines. Ultimately, though, I think that's going to be what we really need is, is a vaccination so that, that we can make enough of the population immune that we don't have to worry about outbreaks. If you get enough of a population immune to any virus, it doesn't get into that population at all. So there's a, a concept of not just am I immune to it, but what's the herd immunity? So if I make enough of the herd immune, no one in the herd gets it because it can't get established in the population. But in general, you need a very large percentage of the population to be immune to the um, disease to get that effect. Um, we're nowhere near that right now. And we really wouldn't be able to get it without um, a vaccination, I don't think. Um, the, so once we get the vaccine, I think we'll be in a much better position. Um, people who do get the disease hopefully will be have long-term immunity. It, it's probably not gonna be permanent, but um, hopefully we'll have long-term, some type of long-term immunity to it. So, um, you know, where are we going to be in a year? I don't know. We'll probably have cycles of outbreak. 
So as you know, right now, things have plateaued off in this area. Um, hopefully that will either continue or the numbers of cases will go down, but I would anticipate that there'll be secondary um, outbreaks that could potentially be much larger than what we've already faced. Um, you know, how big the peaks are in any of the particular cycles, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but the the second or third outbreak could be the big ones. Um, you know, ho hopefully not. We've done a, a pretty good job at containing it in the Syracuse region. Um, I'd like to see that continue. Well, we sure appreciate your insight. Thank you so much to Dr. Jim Sexton, a critical care specialist at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. How effective is social distancing? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Social distancing has been a key component of limiting the spread of the novel coronavirus, but how well is it working? I'm talking about that with Dr. Christopher Morley. He's chair of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Morley. Thank you for, have, for having me, Amber. Now, you and your colleagues have a paper that you've submitted for peer review that deals with the impact of social distancing on the transmission of COVID-19. Tell us what you found. So uh, there are one of the one of the things uh, in the middle of the pandemic uh, that that's occurring in, in the modern era is that there, there are a lot of data available. And we took advantage of one that people have heard about, I think, a fair amount. It's a, a company called Unicast uses cell phone data to measure uh, how well people are social distancing. And they're actually issuing grades for counties on three measures, literally uh, A through F grades, based upon uh, the daily distance people are traveling based upon cell phone pings and how much that has changed since a, since a pre-pandemic date. Um, now, is this something that people had to opt into on their cell phones or is this just naturally? This is naturally collected as a, as a, as a, uh, it, it's part of the part of the background information that anybody with a cell phone is, is sharing with the cloud. Uh, it is anonymous, so it's not like there's somebody, uh, at least not from Unicast, tracking people. And I don't work for Unicast, just to make that clear. These were these these were uh, publicly available data. Um, we asked for uh, a direct link to their to, instead of just their their public dashboard to some background, um, uh, some 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 data in the background, which basically lists the daily score in a tabular format, so we can use them for analyses. And they, they look at how, how often people in general are traveling, how often they're visiting uh, uh, places that are non-essential, so not food or medical, basically, and how, how often cell phones are coming in contact with one another or the encounters that, that people have. Uh, they basically can measure whether two cell phones come uh, within a certain uh, space, 50 meters or less, uh, and for how long. Um, and then, so, so those three measures get a grade. And the uh, there's a there's an average grade, an overall grade. And those grades are assigned to counties across the United States. Now, one thing we were doing to track the epidemic in our area was calculating what's called a reproduction rate each day. And that reproduction rate is a is a it's a little bit complicated to explain, um, but it basically is a is a a number that tells us how quickly the virus is spreading or how many people. Uh, a, a case spreads the virus too. So if the R value is one, each person who has um, the, the, the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2, is transmitting the virus to, on average, one other person. If you get less than one, you're basically breaking the back of the epidemic, potentially. Um, if you're much higher than one, you've got a more serious uh, problem on your hands and you've got basically having an active, active epidemic which is why people have been talking about R. And R turns out to be a lot easier to, to measure on a day-to-day on -day basis than, than simply watching case counts, because case counts can fluctuate a lot, and they can fluctuate based upon how rapidly tests are, uh, are processed, 
how rapidly testing is returned and reported out, um, that can that can impact uh, case counts, as can the sources of of cases. So, for example, if if you have a cluster within a nursing home, that can impact what what a daily case count looks like. But the R value looks at at the the reproduction over time, and so therefore it becomes a pretty stable measure when you can look at a linear uh, trend in in the daily R value against those unicast grades. It basically tells you if you can look at the unicast grade for a day and then look at how R tracked in the week that followed, you can get a sense of how social distancing is impacting viral transmission. The governor seems to pay close attention to the R value. Um, I think he said it should be below one. And then if it rises, that that would be sort of alarming. That's right, because the R value tells us uh, information about how quickly the virus is spreading. If you go above one, you essentially see people transmitting the virus to, on average, more than one other person. Um, and uh, so, so watching that that daily R value, watching that 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 daily reproduction rate becomes really important to see if you suddenly have a spike. The R value is. Um, uh, has a lot more utility because it than than simply watching a case count because a case count uh, for a day might might pop up and and look like a bump for any particular reason. For example, a bunch of tests might come out or a data download might happen at once. Whereas the R value is calculated out over over time, um, basically looking at at how often people who are already infected are are transmitting that to new cases. So you have a bit more of a streamlined. Uh, count of, of how the how the epidemic is moving and simply counting heads uh, of, of infected people. Now, let me understand, do you use the data from Unicast from the cell phones in order to help calculate that R value, or were you just looking at them to compare? Right, that's a great question. We actually, the, the, two, the two measures, R is something we're calculating locally based upon case counts. The cell phone data, we don't actually see cell phone data, we see uh, Unicast's measure. Unicast has these grades and they have some numerical values assigned to those grades as well. We never actually see cell phone data. That's a completely independent measure that Unicast created sort of on the fly because they are they are a cell phone uh, data, uh, that's, that's, their, that's what they do, they, they, they manage cell phone data. Unicast was creating these grades and people haven't been linking those grades as far as we know to things like like case counts or to R values, we actually looked at case counts. We looked at, at, at all sorts of uh, all sorts of different trends. The R value was the most streamlined variable that we could use, and it tended to map with the these unicast grades. They were independently calculated. They they were not they they don't factor in, in with each other. They just they they tend to be associated with one another because we think well social distancing impacts viral transmission. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Chris Morley, the Chair of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate. So what geographic region did you look at for your paper that you've submitted? So this was a byproduct of us looking um, at, at the, um, the, the data in our own area, primarily because we, we were using this to predict what would happen in our own hospital system. Um, so we were looking at Onondaga County and counties that basically are contiguous or close to Onondaga and potentially might impact what's happening in Onondaga, Onondaga County and its hospitals. So we looked at Onondaga County, uh, as well as Cayuga, Cortland, Herkimer, Madison, uh, Oneida, Oswego, and Tompkins counties. Um, and uh, so, so we looked across the eight county region and we would look at, at the R values at, in each county. Um, and the, the average R value and the and the the unicast grade for each each uh, each measure that unicast puts out, um, and we looked at how the the unicast measure predicted the, the week that followed in each county, um, and it turns out that actually density was important too. Encounters was quite important. How often people were coming in contact and for how long with one another, um, and, and it was particularly important. Or uh, in, in, in Onondaga County, where population is is more is more dense. So the denser the, the population, the more important it is that that people uh, monitor those encounters. So rural rural areas would have automatically a higher 
R value or a lower R value just because yeah, they, people are spread out more? Yeah, well, they would have a lower, uh, they, they tended to have lower unit test scores. People were, um, uh, for encounters, because people would, would encounter fewer people, but they also, um, they, had, they had other measures like distance traveled. If you have to go to the store or, or do anything in a rural area, you tend to travel a further distance than if you are in, a, in an urban area where you could potentially walk or a suburban area where you, you might go, you know, a mile or two to a grocery store. Um, you might have to try, travel five or six miles if you live in a rural area to just do basic, basic things. Um, so the, the, um, it does, we, we haven't teased it apart uh, to that level, but it does seem like monitoring your encounters in, in denser areas is probably uh, of particular importance, but that doesn't mean that rural areas are off the hook. It means that they probably have your natural encounters on a, on a regular basis. Well, very interesting. Thank you so much to Dr. Chris Morley, Upstate's Chair of Public Health and Preventive Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Stay with HealthLink on Air to hear about the pandemic's impact on domestic violence. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Reports of domestic abuse have declined during the pandemic, but that's not necessarily good news. Today, I'm speaking with leaders from two Syracuse agencies that help victims of abuse. Randy Bregman is Executive Director of Vera House, and Dr. Ann Botash is a national expert on child abuse and professor of pediatrics at Upstate, who's the medical director of McMahon-Ryan Child Advocacy Center. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Let me start with you, Dr. Botash. Uh, why does this decline in reports of abuse concern you? Well, I think I'm concerned because I have uh, seen this happen before. We've seen uh, reports go down a little bit over the summer when kids aren't in school. And so we know that it's lack of eyes on the children that can cause this ha to happen, that we might see less calls. But also we know that um, anytime that there's stress in a family, economic downturn, the fear in, that's um, been generated by this pandemic, all those things re result in um, children um, being sort of the, the one who gets it taken out on in either physical abuse or sexual abuse. So when you said lack of eyes, you mean teachers or other mandated reporters that would be interacting with children who aren't right now. Yes, and it's not just the eyes, but actually the access to these uh, non-threatening adults, basically, uh, who are safe adults who a, a child could go to and, um, feel comfortable enough to tell them um, what's happening and, and they're not able to have that kind of relationship, at least right now. And Mrs. Bregman, what's the situation at Vera House? Are you concerned about domestic abuse that's not being reported? And actually the numbers around domestic abuse have been all over the place throughout the pandemic. So that I think in countries as they started to emerge from the pandemic crisis, there were indicators that abuse had happened at far greater numbers than in the past. Uh, New York State's numbers for the statewide hotline, the governor reported are up 30%. And the Syracuse police just last week, they reported that their numbers are up 12%. Our calls have been fairly steady here at Vera House. So I think increased calls mean people have found a way to get access and reach out for help. Reduced calls mean people are trapped without seeking assistance. But we knew from the day that there was a stay at home order that people being required to stay in homes with people who hurt them, humiliate them, put them in fear, were, was going to result in catastrophic realities for people we serve and those we haven't yet reached. And I, I think we've seen that play out. It's a very challenging time for us and we're concerned about everybody trapped in these homes. What have your agencies done differently during the pandemic? Well, I can start and then Dr. Botash can jump in. Um, I think we've tried to be much more conscientious about outreach 
and reaching out to people to find out if they're okay. So if we had a safe phone number, um, we went back through people who maybe stopped working with us six months ago, but might now be in a more difficult situation. And our staff reached out, called, checked in to find out if people were okay. We've been pushing out a services poster that we've tried to share and have hung in places that are still open, shared through the Syracuse newspaper and uh, social media to let people know that we're here. We recently added a chat line because we know that making a phone call can be far more difficult than doing something more discreet like a chat. So we opened our chat line a few weeks ago and just over this weekend expanded the hours so we're open from early morning till late night able to respond to people that way. So and also for our therapists, they all went to telemedicine and they've been doing everything through a video conference or through um, phone if that's the preference of the person. And you're seeing, I, I assume, the demand is there for those services? Yes, the demand has been very high. And there have been a few silver linings, so to speak, that um, our therapists have particularly reported from doing the teletherapy and being able to see somebody with their pet in their home, for example, and getting a sense of some of the things that comfort them. Or for someone who might be afraid to leave their home, being able to do a parallel process from the therapist's home to the client's home and achieve some success that they may not have been able to achieve if the person couldn't get to the office. So I think some of the silver lining is we'll be able to continue teletherapy for those that that makes sense for um, and be able to use different creative ways to reach people. So I, I think we have found some success with that, but there are access issues and there are disproportionate impacts on communities of color, low income households, being able to maintain access if they're sharing one laptop, some of those challenges have been real. So we've worked to try and get access to some of those um, both hard and soft resources. And Dr. Botash at McMahon Ryan. Uh, well, I, first I wanna say thank you to, to uh, Randy Bregman and Vera House for everything that you're doing and listening to it. Uh, I, I know that uh, you've been really uh, scrambling, I want to say, to get everything uh, into uh, the right format and to, to help people as much as you've always helped people. And, and uh, I think um, we appreciate that in the CARE program. And the CARE program works uh, out of McMahon Ryan. And so a lot of the activities that I don't want to speak for the, the uh, director of McMahon Ryan, but there's a lot of continuing activities for prevention. And um, initially, we all sort of slowed down a little bit, tried to regroup, figure out how we're going to approach this. Um, and we rescheduled um, many of our patients uh, forward into, um, you know, a later date if we could, as far as their um, health care, if, if we could wait a little bit. And now we're reopened really back up to kind of the same rate of uh, setting up appointments and things like that that we had done in the past. We are also using telehealth and similar uh, to you, I think we really have um, found some silver lining there because it is, it's a different window into a person's life. You can see what they're talking about when they're actually, you know, talking about a child's behavior, for example, and the child's running around <laughs> in the house behind them. You actually can witness it where in an office, it's a, it's a little bit different. It's not um, ideal though, because we really do need to see the children and uh, telehealth um, doesn't give us that. The cameras really aren't there yet <laughs> to help us. They're a little bit too pixelated for, for pictures and things like that. So, um, you know, we've, we've changed a little bit um, in terms of our accessibility. We're uh, set out right from the beginning to be more accessible to other healthcare providers and, and mandated reporters more than um, we usually are just by phone. And we've also, um, really uh, worked really hard to review every single um, call that we get and make sure that it's handled, which we do anyway, but I think now uh, doing it in a different way, we're doing it more as a group. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Randy Bregman, the Executive Director of Vera House, and Dr. Ann Botash, the Medical Director of the McMahon-Ryan Child Advocacy Center and a Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate. Is there reason to believe that the severity of abuse could be worse than usual due to the stress that's caused by the isolation? Are, are abusers abusing more, do you, do you think? 
Um, I think there's some literature to support that abusers are abusing more. Um, there's uh, across the country, um, uh, RAIN, which I'm going to forget what that stands for, but rape, incest, uh, there are uh, another hotline call. They've reported increased in the, in the month of March. Um, the UK has reported, I think they said something between like a, a doubling of the number of domestic violence deaths. So there's there's been some literature to support the severity and the um, numbers of people being abused, children and, and uh, also uh, domestic violence going up. So I, I don't think we have we have a full picture yet. We don't have our own numbers really to, to look at to you know in a, in a big enough way we might have a few weeks worth here but that's it and at vera house do you have a a feeling that uh there's more more severe abuse happening well i think based on the same things dr botash just said that we have um the information from the rape abuse abuse, incest, and national network, um, the international studies that have come out, and some of the people that have come to us for emergency shelter in recent weeks have been in absolutely horrific situations. Um, so I think it's hard to collect data when part of what we began our conversation with is how much data we're missing because people aren't safe to call, don't have safe adults in their lives if they're children, but um, to say we are seriously concerned would be an understatement. So people may feel that they're at the end of the rope with the stress of this situation and assuming that that raises the risk for abuse. Do you have any suggestions for parents or, or people? How can you head off an explosion? Are there safe ways to vent? I think there are always ways for people to make better choices than to hurt someone that they uh, are supposed to love and care about. So I think a lot of that has to do with the ability of the person who uses abusive behaviors to try to make different choices. And I've, this month I'm celebrating my 30th anniversary of working here at Vera House. And I would not be here if I did not have hope for the capacity of people to change. So I think what it takes really is um, an abusive person who might reach out to whatever supports they have to try to help them make better choices. If they need to, you can get in a car and you can go somewhere. You can go to a park if you maintain social distance. So I think people trying to make safe choices because the only way to really stop abuse is to have the people with abusive behaviors make the choice to stop. But then I think there's an opportunity for bystanders, family members, friends, neighbors, people who have a concern, who saw something that concerned them who hears something from their next door neighbor to try to offer relief from the isolation connection and support and if necessary reporting to authorities to try and get help there. I do know from the start of this, and Dr. Botash probably has numbers, the calls to our local child protective services were down significantly. And so I think it, it takes a, a village and a community to help keep eyes out and make resources for those vulnerable victims. And the numbers were down probably about by half, I would say. Again, people are still looking at the numbers. However, there, there has really seemed to be, and this is anecdotal, but the last week or so, and a little bit of an uptick, we're starting to see and more like our normal uh, you know, calls, at least to us uh, in the care program coming in for evaluations. Um, I, I think that, you know, as a provider, we look at, you know, what we've always said to people, you know, that are resources available for them. And those resources are still there. You know, Vera House is still there. Child Protective Services provides many resources for families. The, our, our city and our, our, our um, county police do, you know, a lot of uh, handling of families and helping them to, to you know, find the right um, resources that they need for help. So all these agencies are still working and still providing the, the, the help that we need. Um, but what, what I worry about is that people are less um, less capable of, of actually finding the numbers that they need because they're maybe um, being watched too closely by a perpetrator in the home 
or or maybe they can't you know i'm doing a telehealth with somebody and they just don't feel comfortable telling me about the domestic violence that's happening in the home because the person is right there in the next room or or they can't you know even a child um you know might be on um a zoom call with their school and they can't actually tell the teacher like they normally would have so those are those are things that i I think we have to figure out ways to make this more accessible, make our resources more accessible to people. I think we used to say, oh, you know, a neighbor could come over and maybe relieve the family of, you know, childcare for a little while. We can't do that now. So we have to think of other ways that we might be able to help families that are really uh, under a lot of stress. But people who, children or adults who need help right now, the services are still in operation and they can safely get help if, if I hear what you're saying. Yes. Uh, and um, actually, you know, we talk a lot about healthcare heroes. These are, these are heroes that are going into the homes, child protective workers, and, you know, putting themselves at risk of illness and making sure that children are safe and it's still happening um, right now. I, I would agree that the services are there. Um, the question is people finding their way to the services right now. So for someone, a child or an adult who wants to report abuse or needs help, what would each of your agencies like them to do? Dr. Botash, how could they reach help? We recommend if there's a suspicion of abuse that the person call the New York State hotline, uh, the child abuse hotline, and that number is 800-342-3720. And that's usually the first point of contact. And then uh, we will we'll get our um, referrals through them. Um, however, sometimes people aren't sure about um, calling or they have other needs. And we do have a website, which you'll provide later. If you contact any one of our agencies in, in our county, um, the resources that you need will be offered, and I think you'll be able to reach um, whichever service is um, a priority. So that's, that's um, I think, a, a good resource for you to check our website as well as the Vera House website and the McMahon-Ryan website. And Mrs. Bregman for uh, Vera House? Well, I would um, just add a couple of things, and I appreciate Dr. Botash mentioning the Vera House website. I also want to remind folks that we now have that chat available um, from early morning till late at night, um, right through that website as well. And then if you uh, have an immediate situation where you feel unsafe, you should still call 911 to try to get a police response. Um, 211 gives you general resources if you're trying to find housing and a host of other things. And we maintain a 24-hour hotline um, for victims or friends or family who need help. And that hotline number is 315-468-3260. Again, 315-468-3260. Well, thank you both. We will post links to each of your websites along with some resources for people at healthlinkonair.org. Thank you to Randy Bregman, the Executive Director of Vera House, and Dr. Ann Botash, the Medical Director of the McMahon-Ryan Child Advocacy Center and a Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. What's it like waiting for test results? Rich H. Kenny Jr. is an associate professor of social work in Chadron, Nebraska. His poem, Closer Looks, describes the passage of time for one patient. Monday the 5th. A stray dog ransacks a trash can. Dark skies linger like a taste of bad wine. Windblown headlines tumbleweed across a yard. The interstate becomes a parking lot. Raucous birds fly overhead. An obituary is clipped from a newspaper. The guard tells a visitor not to touch the exhibit. A man is tested for cancer. Thursday the 8th. Pals pose trailside in a decades-old photo. A horse with no name plays in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. 
A man in his sixties feeds ducks at the lake. Sidebars and box scores flutter against a neighbor's fence. The abandoned puppy breakfasts from a shiny blue bowl. Puckering rain clouds spritz wine cellar skies. At shift change, the young girl discovers art with her fingers. The man studies skin left too long in the sun. Monday, the 12th. Canadian geese in perfect V formation splash down at the lake. The tag-wailing beagle drops a tennis ball at my feet. I tape and frame the tattered picture. A student blind since birth tells me she wants to become a sculptor. I crank up mudslide slim in the rush hour commute. There's a hint of promise in robust blackberry skies. I unhook yellowed bylines and hang wind chimes from the breezeway. Biopsy results will be ready tomorrow. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, or to hear podcasts on a variety of health topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.